We are, again, continuing in our um, sermon series on the book of Judges. I think you'll be in for a treat for this one because uh, it was a really fun to study, and I think you'll just find it quite interesting about the, the lesson that we gained from our, our judge, Jephthah. And so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11, that's where we're going to be this morning um, as we study throughout the life of this judge and what he did and what we can gain from it and the lesson we can gain from it. Now, how many of you have ever noticed this phenomenon before where people start to look like their dogs? I, I was looking this up and I noticed, because uh, I used to always think about how husband and wives started to look alike as they got older and they were married more. Now, I know a couple that, I mean, they could be twins, I don't think they are, uh, but uh, it's a husband and wife that look alike. But I also noticed this, how um, people and their pets look alike, specifically dogs. Um, if you knew the dog that we used to have, me and Griff, we were like two peas in a pod. Uh, we both were shaggy, bearded people, and uh, we looked just alike. And you notice from these pictures, these are actual people and their pets and how they look alike. Um, this was actually a study done by a man by the name of Sadahiko Nakajimo. He was a psychologist, and he found in a study uh, that he performed in 2009 that people could pair pets to owners 80% of the time. By just looking at a pet and a picture of a person, they could say, that is that pet's person. And, and they were able to do that with a, a study of about 500 different pairs. And that is what happened. And it's a crazy uh, phenomenon how people can start to look like pets in their life. Well, this morning, I want to talk about an unworthy vow. Now, how does that relate to this idea of people and their pets looking alike? Why did you just tell us all that? Well, sadly, what we're going to find from Jephthah, and we're going to talk about it later, is how the people of Israel started to look like the world how they stopped looking for God and they started letting culture come into their world and into their lives and into their religion and how it made them look more like the world rather than God's people. And again, if you already know where this is going, I'm going to talk about how the church has done the same thing in some areas. All right. And so we're going to be in Judges 11 and, and I want to go through this story with you this morning. As we go through this, we'll find that um, there are multiple instances as we go through this story. Follow along with me as we kind of dive in. You'll notice in verses 1 through 3, we're not going to read all of this, but Jephthah is kind of booted out of his family. And he, he's driven out, and we see that he has to go on and do his own life. But then, all of a sudden... His people want him back. If you look at verses 4 through following, you'll notice that his, his people are saying, hey, the Ammonites are, are oppressing us. We need your help. Now, we notice something about Jephthah in these verses. If you kind of read between the lines, Jephthah must have been some sort of great warrior. For these people to come back to him and say, hey, uh, we need your help. If you look down at verse 8, notice uh if you go up a little bit before in verse 7, why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Verse 8, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, 
That is why we have turned to you now that you may go fight with us against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and the leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, what's fascinating is they first kicked him out. They, they didn't want him there. And now they're bringing him back and saying, hey, well, we actually do need your help. You, you seem like some mighty warrior. He's got a great reputation to be able to fight against people. So they want to bring him back, right? And so he makes a, a, a pledge to them. Hey, if I go and the Lord hands him over to me, I will be your king. And they say, okay, that sounds good to us. And so that's what happens. So then you have in verses 7 through 11, Jephthah makes this deal to be the leader. In verse 12, we find Jephthah's question to Ammon. Notice uh, after he has made this deal, he then reaches out to the Ammonites, right? And notice what he says. He says, what do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? Hey, Ammonite people, why are you trying to take over my land? And this actually starts back in chapter 10 about this whole ordeal between God's people and the Ammonites. And so look at how Ammon, uh, the king of Ammon, responds. He says in verse 13, And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from Arnon, from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peacefully. Now, what Jephthah is going to do next is, is give a history lesson to this king, right? And so what's going to happen is they're going to go back and they're going to start talking about what happened about 300 years before this, right? And Jephthah makes this argument, hey, when we came out and we were wandering in the wilderness, we came to the land of Moab to see if we could have passage through there because you have to imagine there's about 2 million people walking through this wilderness land, they're going to make some tracks, right? There's going to be quite noticeable all these people coming through. So they go and they say, hey, land of Moab, can we come through there? And they say, no, we can't come through here, right? They were fearful of the people. They go to the land of Edom and they say, hey, can we come through there? And they say, no, you can't come through here, all right? And, and so you think to yourself, well, why wouldn't they just fight those people? Uh, why weren't they allowed to just go through and mess with, well, actually, God told them, the, you cannot fight with Edom and you can't fight with Moab. So they just skirted around those areas, right? And then they came upon this Arnon, land of Arnon, right? Uh, and we have this um, king who was talked to, uh, Sihon, and Israel said, hey, can we come through there? And he said, no. Now, God never said you can't fight them. Right, And so actually what happens is they uh, take on Sihon, king of the Amorites, right, um, king of Heshbon, and they take him over. Now, did anywhere did you find where it was the king of Ammon? See, that was the problem. The Ammonite king thought that was their land. 
but it really wasn't. It was actually this Sihon, uh, king of Heshbon and king of the Amorites. And so they took over that land because they conquered it, and that became a part of the uh, land of, of Israel and part of their land. And so now this king of Ammon wants this back. But Jephthah actually gives him a great argument as to why this is not your land. Now notice also a part of this argument that gets really confusing here is in verses 23 and 24. Notice what uh, Jephthah says in this argument. He kind of plays towards theology here. He says, so then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people and Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Verse 24, will you not possess what Shemosh, that's the, their God, your God gives to you to possess, and all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now here's wrong, or what's wrong with Jephthah's argument, right? He's playing towards a, a theology sort of argument in his debate with the king of Ammon. Who does he say that Ammon got their land from? Their God, Shemosh. Now, what would be wrong with that if you're a Jew or an Israelite? Who gives everybody anything? God. You see how we already start seeing this flawed theology start trickling into the people of Israel. Right? We're 11 chapters into the book of Judges. And we already see throughout multiple cycles where the people uh, stopped worshiping God. They had given themselves over to evil and, and they started worshiping Baals. They started worshiping false gods. You see now how this flawed theology is already starting to creep into God's people. Because they think, oh, you gained all of that Ammon because Shemosh gave you all of that land. Well, do false gods do anything? No, just read through the book of Elijah, or not the book of Elijah, but read through the prophet Elijah's accounts in the kings, and you'll find that the, ba the Baals were not able to do anything, but God was, right? And so now you have this flawed theology going on in these peoples. And so then he goes on to even talk about Balak and how he did not fight against Israel, right? He called Balaam to come and curse Israel, but found out that Balaam could only bless Israel and so he gave up on even trying that right and so you have that argument end and then you have the king of Ammon's response after he laid out facts upon facts upon facts what did the king of Ammon do but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him how miserable would that be here's all the facts here's how it happened here's how God gave us this land and then he said, ah, never mind, I don't want to even hear you. Now, I just want to take a side note there and just let us know, and this is not the main part of this lesson, but this is a lesson for all of us to hear. We may lay out every fact to somebody about how God is true and God is everything and here's what the Bible has to say. And you know what some people may do? Just not even want to listen to you. They may have even asked you to study with them. And they may have said, oh, you point all that out. I see it exactly in Scripture, what you have just said to me. But I just don't want to listen to that, right? And that shouldn't cause us heartburn. Yes, it's going to cause us to, to struggle a little, little bit. But who are they really rejecting in that? Are they rejecting you? 
No, and always remember that when you're studying with somebody and you go through Scripture and you give them truth, notice they're not rejecting you in that process. They're rejecting God, right? And so that should take a lot of weight off of your shoulders, hopefully. So now, okay, there's your response from Ammon, all right? Now this warrior Jephthah is about to go to battle. And he makes this vow to God. God, if you were to give the Ammonites into my hand, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Okay. All right, there were sacrifices in Israel. That kind of makes sense. All right, so now Jephthah goes down, defeats the Ammonites, comes back. Lo and behold, what is the first thing that comes out of his house? His daughter. Not just his daughter. His only child is to walk out of his house. And he says, okay, God. I guess that's what you want. Okay, now I want you to, because maybe some of you get confused when you read through Judges 11, and you think, what in the world? Why would God want Jephthah to sacrifice his own daughter? Now, let me see if I can find these questions. Those are good questions for you to ask, right? Uh, Why was this an unworthy vow, right? Why was this vow that Jephthah made unworthy? It seems that it helped Jephthah win the battle against Ammon, right? Because he made this vow before, and Ammon was defeated by Jephthah. And so you're starting to think, well, maybe God liked this vow. Here's the problem. Where did God ever say he desired human sacrifices to be made? He didn't. Right? He actually said the opposite. If you were to go to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, he talks about this very thing. I don't want those type of sacrifices. Right. And so you actually see these people of Israel wanting to make these child sacrifices. And then you have to start thinking, well, where did Jephthah get this idea that it would be okay? Because if you read Scripture and you just read it for what it says, what does it say happened? His daughter went off into the mountains for two months. Right. She mourned her virginity and she came back down and it said Jephthah did to her as he vowed. He sacrificed her. Don't read into all the commentators that'll say, I don't know really what he did because they're trying to make sure they don't say that this person sacrificed a child. Guess what he did? He sacrificed a child. Why? What had happened? The people of Israel had become so far from God, now they're starting to offer their children because who did that? The surrounding religions. People offered their children to Shemosh. People offered their children to Molech, to all these Baals, these Baals, whatever you want to call them. That was a part of their religion, and that religion had creeped into God's religion. And now they think that this is, would be worthy, but if they were to go back to the original books of the law, they would say, oh, I shouldn't do this at all, right? I should just actually rely on God, and he'll do these things for me, and I'll be obedient to him. That's what makes this an unworthy vow. And it makes it so interesting that we find this account of these people doing this in, in God's people. Right? And so now we see that Jephthah allowed the culture, the religion that was around him, to skew his theology. His understanding of God and God's religion. Jephthah allowed the culture, the religions around him to do that. Now, that's not uncommon to God's people, is it? 
All you have to do is just start reading through the Bible. Read through historical accounts, right? When you start thinking of Solomon, what happened? He had all these wives and these concubines. What did they do to him? He allowed them to infiltrate his theology, right? His heart left the Lord. He allowed outside cultures, outside religions to affect him. Right? You can keep going through the king's accounts if you want and start going through the divided kingdom and see how this king was somewhat for the Lord. Right? You think about Asa, he was devoted to the Lord, but he left what? The high places. Right? And those high places were places where people could worship these false gods. In John 4, you have the account with uh, the Samaritan woman and Jesus. What had happened to the Samaritans? Right? They thought they were worshiping the true God, but they were worshiping him on the wrong mountain. Right. See, they had let outside uh, cultures, religions uh, infiltrate their theology. When you start thinking about Mark chapter 11 and how culture had creeped into the temple, this is where we always talk about how Jesus got angry. Right. He goes into the temple. He starts flipping over tables. What was wrong with the temple at that point? They had turned it into a den of robbers. Right. They wanted money. They wanted they had greed. Right, And they let that creep into God's temple, God's house. And they were starting to sell animals for way more expensive than they, what they should have been so that these poor people could buy a sacrifice. And they had let culture, they had let all these things creep into God's religion. Has it also creeped into the church today? Has culture creeped into the church today? If you were to... Tell me, uh, uh, and oftentimes when we talk about God and how he is uh, just and he is righteous, yes, he is. And we'll use scriptures like Hebrews 13.8 to talk about how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then you see in Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. And what we learn is that God is never changing, right? We would all agree with that point. We would all agree that God never changes. And most of the time we apply that principle just to salvation and faith. Was it an officer the same with his doctrines in the church? Isn't his word still the same? Doesn't his word still apply to us today? Right? And so we can use it and we often use it for salvation matters. But when we start talking about how the church should be structured and how we should have all of these different things and all of that, why don't we still use that same principle? We should, right? And so you find that God is the same. There was a, a quote here from F.F. F. Bruce. He was a biblical scholar back in the 80s. And he says, or even before that, um, when the Christian message is so thoroughly accommodated to the prevalent climate of opinion that it becomes one more expression of the climate of opinion, it is no longer the Christian message. I want you to see if you can wrap your head around that. If the Christian message is so thoroughly accommodated, right, makes accommodations for, to the prevalent climate of opinion, that is the majority opinion out there, right, that it becomes a, just another expression of that opinion, it is no longer a Christian message or the Christian message, right? How, how do we see that applied? You name the climate of opinion. Right now, and it's getting a little bit older, women's rights. 
that's a climate of opinion. We're starting to move towards, you know, having uh, women be able to do a lot of different things in leadership roles. How has that crept into the church? Accommodation made? Female preachers, female elders. Now, I, I was able to actually do an impromptu Bible study with some people um, this past week, and we talked about this and how, how this has crept in. And the Bible is very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, about elders, pastors, right? Um, leaders of the church, the overseers of the church, they are to be the husband of one wife. That person stopped me, they said, does it really say that in the Bible? I said, yes. They go, huh. Well, I guess that only means it could be one type of, one gender of person, right? Now, what would I have to do to let a woman be an elder? Now, don't think that I don't love women. I love my wife, my two girls so much. And if you've ever known me for just a little bit, I I respect all people. The problem is, is God says, I want men to be the leaders. But since our culture says, well, women should take on leadership roles too, to accommodate that, some churches have said, well, we'll let women be our leaders too. And they say, 1 Timothy 3 was a cultural thing. Again, remember back to Hebrews 13, 8 and Malachi 3, 6. If God is never changing, should we ever change his word? No, right? We should never want to change God's word just because culture is pressing us to. Now, climate of opinion, right? All roads lead to heaven. Just pick one and you'll get there. Where does it say that in scripture? Please, it would be much easier for me to evangelize if I could actually say that to people and be truthful about it. Because it'd be a lot easier to say, hey, the life you're living, cool. Just trust in Jesus. That's all. Good job. But I can't do that because I open up Scripture. And you even have in Matthew 7 where Jesus says there's actually two roads. There's a broad one. There's a narrow one. The narrow one's getting you there. The broad one's not. Right? But our culture doesn't want to agree with that. And because our culture and the majority doesn't want to agree with that, we make accommodations. And we say, it's okay. That's fine. Now, I'm thankful that this church here at Mercedes Drive Church of Christ, we don't make those accommodations because we see God's word. We're not mean about it. We just let God say it. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and it was a fun conversation because I, I try to just use scripture when I talk to people about God's word and what we do here at this congregation, Right? And it makes it easy for me. And he goes, yeah, it it does seem like it makes it easy for you. And he said this, because you're not the one to blame if somebody gets mad. Really, they have to blame God because all you're doing is using his word. And I said, amen, right? And it makes it easy for us if we're talking to people and we say, this is why we do this in the church. And you say, here's scriptures for it. Here's the truth. Now, make sure you're using those scriptures truthfully because you don't want to get caught using them untruthfully, right? We're using them truthfully and in the right context and making the right application with them. People are going to say, that makes a lot of sense. I understand why y'all do that and why y'all are staying true to God's word. We need to make sure we don't let culture affect our religion. We need to make sure that we are not giving up on God's word just to accommodate what is the majority opinion in this country, in this 
day and age. We need to make sure we stay true to him. And the last thing really I want to uh, leave you with this morning is culture should not affect Christianity. So many times we let it. What should be affected? Our Christianity should affect culture, right? Uh, We should be so gung-ho about wanting to understand the Bible, wanting to know truth, that we let it control our entire lives. And when we let it control our entire lives, and let's say we're just this number of people, 60 to 70 people, and we have these 60, 70 people going to all the communities around us, and we're not accommodating for what people want, and we rather are living by what God wants, imagine the effects it could have. That makes sure you're truthful, make sure you're loving, and make sure you're gentle about it, right? Those are all principles in Scripture. But never be accommodating. Never say, okay, I'll give in because there's a lot more people that think we should do this, and so let's just go ahead and do it. Now, again, there's a lot more accommodation issues than I brought up, right? I I talked about... Uh, salvation. and I, I talked about women's roles, but you start to think about worship and how we've let our worship be affected by what the culture wants. Uh, we've started to say, hey, we can't really, uh, if we want to grow, we better start putting stuff in the buildings. We better start changing for what people want. What about what God wants? He created us. Why shouldn't we want to worship him the way he wants to be worshiped? Right? So always make sure we understand this. Culture should not affect Christianity. Christianity should affect culture. Now, uh, a lesson that we can learn from Jephthah. Be careful about letting our, the culture around us creep into our Christianity. Make sure that we are uh, on the, not just on the passive end or on the um, playing defense all the time. Let's play offense. Let affect the communities around us with the Christianity that we have, with the truth that we understand, with the Bible, with God's Word. Let's get out into our communities, because I can guarantee you, I've had more positive conversations lately with people who are claiming to be Christians and understanding truth than I thought I would ever have. Because all I've said is, here's what the Bible says, here's how we carry it out in the church I work for and I'm a part of, and um, this is what they do, and they go, that makes a lot of sense. It does, I promise. It's right there. God says it. It's pretty simple, right? And we should understand it that way. And so don't be scared to go and to talk to people about your faith and your Christianity and all of this and think, oh, man, they're just going to reject me. They're going to call me a weirdo, Uh, whatever. Just go to them and say, here's what God's word says. This is why we do this at the church I go to and I attend and I'm a part of. And this is why we love to do that. We love God. We want to do what he wants us to do. Now, you may be here this morning, and you may be uh, thinking to yourself, I don't know if this is really a message for me to respond to. I, I don't know. Maybe you're here, and you have some things on your heart you'd like to, uh, to get off. You'd like to ask for prayers uh, for us to help you in whatever need that you have. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you are uh, at that point in your life where you have said, I want to submit my life to Christ. I'm ready to stop living for me, and I'm ready to start living for him. And and this is the morning you want to have your sins washed away and become a child of God through baptism. 
it may be that morning for you. And if it is, I'd like to ask you to please come while we stand and sing the song of invitation.